Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? Do you know that Johnny Carson once caused a toilet paper shortage? You know, I know we've talked about this story before. It's been a long time. Like, I remember he joked that there was no toilet paper and all of his listeners like went out and hoarded toilet uh, paper <laughs> thinking that we might run out or something like that, right? Yeah, so that's basically the story. I, I mean, there's a little more to it. According to Snopes, this Wisconsin congressman, this guy, uh, Harold Froelich, had actually realized there was a pulp paper shortage. So he was kind of trying to think down the line and he issued the statement worrying about the day when the government might have to ration toilet paper. Carson picked up the item and then for weeks it was really hard to buy toilet paper. In, in fact, people were so worried that stores not only ran out of toilet paper, they also ran out of paper towels as well. Wow, that's pretty crazy. And is there any sense of like whether Carson felt bad about this or what? Yeah, I mean, I think he mostly felt bad for himself. He didn't want to be remembered as the guy who caused a toilet paper shortage, which is obviously yeah. why we're bringing it up today. But uh, today's show is about some very real things we're running out of from sand to bacon to precious metals and thankfully no TP. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, I-, I can actually hardly see him at this point. This guy's been building this barricade of sandbags for days now. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. So I- I've got to say, this might be my fault. Earlier in this week, I was telling Tristan how the world's supply of sand is getting low. And ever since, he's just been stockpiling this stuff like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> Well, he must have enough in there to start his own private beach, which I've heard might be his goal as well. So uh-huh. anyway, good luck to you, Tristan. But though, to be fair, humans really are running out of sand from what I've heard. That's true, right? 
Yeah, and that's not all either. Like, there are actually all kinds of unexpected resources that the world's in short supply of. And this includes everything from, like, coffee to helium to even dirt. And a big reason for those dwindling supplies is just how much the human population has grown. So if you think about it, like, in the 2000s, the population was at 6 billion worldwide. And today that number is way closer to 7.6 billion And it's growing fast. And with that kind of unprecedented growth in such a short period of time, it's really easy to see how we might get light on certain resources. I mean, but sand, that's what's so surprising. And I say this having just been to the beach, you know, not too long ago. So I really wouldn't have thought this was something that we'd ever be running out of. So what is the story on this exactly? So weirdly, the blame lies with the construction industry. And that's because sand is actually a crucial ingredient for producing concrete. In fact, sand typically makes up about 25% of a wet concrete mixture, and it adds strength to the finished product. But to loop this back to the population boom, you just have to think about, like, how much new construction was needed to house and service all these extra people, right? Like, you need new apartment buildings, you need skyscrapers, sidewalks, roads, and I guess all sorts of infrastructure to support that sort of growth. And that means a lot of concrete and, by extension, a lot of sand. And that all makes sense. But, you know, if you think about it, there's sand used in several other things that we make, like glassware, even electronics. And I would think that has to be contributing at least a little bit, though, right? It is. And actually, sand and gravel are so useful in certain industries that they've become the most extracted materials on the planet. Like, it even surpasses fossil fuels and biomass when measured by weight. But even still, there's no question that the bulk of all that extracted sand and gravel is being used for construction. You know, a few years ago, the U.S. Geological Survey estimated that about 30 billion tons of sand and gravel were being used in global construction projects, and this was every year. And by contrast, all all the world's other industry uses for sand account for about 14 billion tons annually. Wow, so 44 billion tons per year, and you're saying, what, that like two-thirds of that goes toward construction by itself, right? Exactly, but, but here's the thing. 44 billion tons is considered a conservative estimate. There's actually a strong chance that many countries have been underreporting their sand use for years to hide the true extraction rates. And the result of this is that some regions are now running out of sand altogether. There have also been some straight-up sand thefts from beaches, like in the Caribbean. I, I read the story from 2008 about Jamaica, where 500 truckloads of sand were taken from White Beach overnight. And uh, and police were just baffled where they went. Like, they went to other resorts, they halted construction, but they just couldn't match that sand anywhere else. Like, it's kind of stunning. But um, sand, you know, if you think about it, has always been a local product because just about every country has some of their own. But now that some regions are exhausting their native supply, sand's actually become a globally traded commodity. And it's crazy to see that. I mean, sand's international trade value has risen about 600% over the last 25 years. All right, so the sand business is booming like we've never seen it before. But I'm curious, like, what what's the downside to all of this? Is it just higher construction costs or what? Well, I mean, the financial expense is definitely a drawback, but it's kind of the least of our concerns. The bigger problem is that sand mining has all these terrible effects on the environment. It causes flooding, it damages infrastructure, pollutes rivers, you know, and it ruins beaches. And that last part is really where a lot of the human cost comes in because beaches and wetlands, there's these natural protective barriers for coastal communities. So, you know, widespread sand mining, along with all the erosion it causes, it actually exposes people to greater danger from floods and storms. 
Well, and if you think about other issues, we've got sea levels that are rising all the time. So it's, you know, it's not a great position to be in. I mean, the situation is even worse in developing countries like parts of Asia and Africa. And that's because sand exploitation in these regions has actually led to organized crime groups getting involved. So uh, they're into like illegal sand mining and trade. And it's wild to think about, but they're really these sand mafias out there. They use bribes, threats and violence to control black market sales. Well, I'm curious, like, why are countries strip mining beaches and coastlines at all? I mean, it seems like there's plenty of sand in the Earth desert, so why would we not just be using that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, but ultimately, desert sand doesn't work. It's it's because it's eroded from wind rather than water, and desert sand ends up being, like, too fine to be used in construction materials. I mean, concrete made from that kind of sand doesn't hold well together, which, you know, makes it much weaker as a result, but... Traditionally, the majority of construction sand was mined from riverbanks and quarries, but now with demand at this global height, taking sands from beaches and coastlands has also become common. What's well, a shame? I'm curious, though, like how desperate is the situation? Like, are we really building that much more than we used to or what? So not all countries are showing this dramatic rise in sand consumption, but the ones that have are really using enough for this to be worrisome. So, for, for instance, according to the U.S. Geographical Survey, China, India, Brazil, the U.S., and Turkey, these are the biggest concrete producers in the world with, you know, China and India account for two-thirds of the total production. And China's actually the worst offender. Uh, A 2014 report from the U.N. Environmental Program revealed that over the past 20 years, the country's cement use has skyrocketed by 437%. And if you compare that to the 58% increase in the rest of the world, you can see why China is considered a sand hog. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm curious, so like, what is the solution to all this? Because I, I know we can't exactly ban concrete, right? Yeah, obviously, most countries aren't going to go for that. There, there are some promising alternatives. For example, um, engineers in the UK are working on a new kind of concrete that uses not only like a smaller amount of sand, but also makes up the difference with these plastic pellets. Um, there's also the option to cut back on concrete usage in, in favor of more sustainable materials. We're talking about straw here or recycled plastics. Um, another bet is just to make use of the sand we've already extracted. So if we got better at recycling used concrete and and glass bottles, we'd actually put a big dent in the need for fresh construction sand. But probably the best way to prevent a global sand crisis is for countries to come up with an agreement on sand usage. I, I mean, we already have these international agreements for other natural resources, so why not do the same for sand? Well, that's a good point. I think we're just so used to having this abundance of sand. And so it never really occurred to us that we, you know, we should be trying to conserve it. So, yeah, but most people think about these finite resources, but sand really doesn't tend to come up as one of those, at least when we're thinking about them or talking about them. Yeah. And and that makes sense on some level because new sand is continually being produced, right? Like sand is just bits of rock and shell that have been worn down to their most basic elements. And that process is going on constantly. But what gets overlooked is how incredibly long that timeline is. We've gotten to the point where we're using much more sand than could ever be replaced in a lifetime or even in a bunch of lifetimes. Well, that's something we should talk about before we go much further is like, what do we really mean when we say the world is running out of a resource? Because, you know, it can sound a little alarmist to say we're running out of sand or coffee or whatever. And, you know, especially if that resource will never really be exhausted. For example, you know, for all the fuel and energy crisis that the world has known, we won't ever actually run out of oil or gas. These substances, they'll continue to accumulate naturally over time. 
But what will happen eventually is that we'll deplete all the easy-to-access fuel deposits. So, you know, even though oil will still be there, the cost of getting it is going to skyrocket. And then, you know, most people will just be priced out of using it as a fuel source. Yeah, and aside from certain species of extinct plants or animals, I'm not sure if the planet's ever really truly run out of a natural resource. Like, uh, apparently there's this mineral called cryolite, and it's used in pesticides and also in processing aluminum foil. And by most accounts, this is something that we've completely run out of. Like, the last cryolite mine was closed in the 1980s, and we've been using a synthetic alternative to make bug spray and foil ever since. But that's not to say that the Earth is completely out of cryolite. Like, there are these rich, deep veins of the mineral that still exist all over the globe. It's just that the going rate for cryolite wouldn't justify the cost of mining it. So from a practical standpoint, we've basically run out of cryolite, even if there's still a lot out there. Right. And, you know, none of this should downplay the severity of these situations. And if anything, the idea that we're close to being priced out of all of these useful substances, I would think that should be a wake-up call at the very least. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, have you heard about China's monopoly on rare earth metals? The the country said to control more than 90% of the planet's rare earth deposits, and they can actually restrict airports on those supplies anytime they want. Like, it's easy to imagine that kind of thing leading to international disputes at some point. Well, I mean, we've already said that China's using the most sand, so now we're seeing that they're also hogging all of the best metals. And, you know, I kind of want to be outraged about all of this, but I, I have to admit, I don't really know anything about rare earth metals. So you tell me, <laughs> should, should I be outraged about this? Yeah, well, Gabe gave me a primer, and I'm going I'm to uh, tell you about it because uh, okay. I'll let you make up your own mind. There are... Uh, Currently, 17 elements classified as rare earth minerals, and this includes stuff like scandium and terbium, which are used to make everything from circuit boards and smartphones to um, missile guidance systems to even magnets used in wind turbines. And, you know, these metals aren't quite as rare as their name suggests, but they are incredibly useful and they aren't easy to source outside of China And adding to this concern is the fact that China likes to keep its cars close to its vest. I I mean, we have no idea exactly how much of these minerals the country still has left in reserve or how much longer it'll be willing to trade them and share them with rival nations. Like, if and when that supply dries up, we might have to turn to lunar mining to get our rare earth fix. I mean, what strikes me about this is just how unsexy of a problem it is. I mean, you know, rare earth elements may be in short supply, but... How many of us even really know what they are, let alone what they're used for? And so it seems like that's one of the biggest hurdles to bringing awareness to issues, you know, like these dwindling sand resources or other minerals or just anything that's like this that we don't really understand. I mean, it is, but we shouldn't let a lack of sex appeal stop us from talking about something really boring, but also important. Well, you know, let's double down and talk about what has to be one of the least provocative resources in short supply, and that's the very dirt beneath our feet. But before we dig in, let's take a quick break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about some unexpected resources that the world is running out of. And speaking of which, Will, you already alluded to our dwindling dirt supply, but just how bad is this damage? Well, the problem isn't so much a lack of dirt, but the lack of quality dirt. So in particular, we're running out of usable topsoil, which is that layer of dirt that contains the most nutrients that allow plant life to grow. And as frightening it is to admit, by most calculations, I think we're down to about 60 years worth of topsoil on average. So you're saying that in about 60 years, we won't be able to grow crops anymore? I mean, that's the long and short of it, because at this point, roughly 40% of the world's agricultural soil is classified as either degraded or seriously degraded. And these are the terms that refer to how little topsoil an area of land contains. And when you run the numbers on this, we've actually lost about half the topsoil on Earth in just the past 150 years or so. And so that means that most of the nutrients the dirt once contained are gone now. And as a result of this, we're growing a lot less food than we used to. But even beyond that, what we do manage to grow is far less nutritious than it used to be. For instance, modern wheat varieties contain 50% less micronutrients than the older strains. And it's a similar case with fruits and vegetables. I mean, many of those have lost half their nutritional value or more. And that's just in the years since 1950. So... This is actually terrifying to think about, especially since it sounds like the problem will get significantly worse. But what is the problem exactly? Like, what's degrading the soil so much? Well, a lot of this soil degradation is due to the farming techniques that strip carbon and the nutrients from the soil. And that just makes it weaker and less robust in the process. So this is stuff like excessive tilling or the overuse of harmful pesticides or fertilizers and These are all methods that put a lot of strain on the soil, and they also up the amounts of salts and acids that the soil contains. And, of course, over time, this makes the dirt less and less hospitable to the plants that we want to grow there. Okay, so then you can just reverse those practices, right? Like, uh, couldn't we just do away with synthetic fertilizers and, I don't know, like invest in good old-fashioned manure? I mean, that would be a great start, no question about that. But there's actually another major issue at play here, and it's, you know, something I hadn't thought that much about until I started skimming through this book. And the book is called 
The Ground Beneath Us, and it's by Paul Bogart. And what Paul points out is the sheer speed at which we're paving over some of the most fertile soil that we have. So I'm just going to read a little excerpt from the book. And so here's what it says. Human settlements have traditionally taken root in fertile areas. And as these increasingly urban areas grow in human numbers, we're developing the ground and thus losing the best soils for growing food. In the United States, the amount of ground being lost to development is stunning, more than a million acres per year. As one result, whereas in 1980, the nation had an average of nearly two acres of cropland for each citizen, 30 years later, and with 90 million people added, that number had fallen to 1.2 acres per American. All this might not matter so much if we could just find more soil or just make more soil ourselves. But for all practical purposes, soil is a non-renewable resource. The recipe for soil is incredibly complex, requiring an intricate mix of the right chemistry, biology, and physics. And it simply takes a long time to form. The rule of thumb? Between 500 and several thousand years for an inch of topsoil. So incredible for just an inch of it. It's kind of like sand, right? Like like the world continues to make new topsoil, but not nearly fast enough to keep pace with how we use it. So it might be time to rethink how we're using it. Right. And especially the whole paving over huge tracks of it in one go part. And, you know, that's not a process you can just undo. There's no going back once the ground is paved, which is why there's this saying among environmentalists that asphalt is the land's last crop. And that that's... That's clever, but it's also really chilling. But, you know, since we're already on a downward spiral here, if you want a truly scary reason to worry about the global food supply, I've got two words for you. Phosphorus shortage. All right. Well, you're going to have to explain why this is scary. Remind us again what what exactly phosphorus is and, and what it's used for. Well, I mean, phosphorus is a mineral that's used in all kinds of products. It's used in pharmaceuticals, detergents, building materials, food preservatives, but You know, probably most importantly, it's an active ingredient in most high-quality fertilizers. We spread a lot of phosphorus on our crops every year, so if we were to run out of it before sourcing a suitable alternative, food production would actually take a huge hit. So how likely is it that we'll run out of phosphorus, or or is it more a question of when at this point? Yeah, so there's a term called peak phosphorus, and it's basically the point in time when humanity will have hit the maximum production rate possible for phosphorus. So the idea is that from that point on, the mineral will become harder and harder to source. So most researchers seem to think we'll hit peak phosphorus by 2030 and then completely wipe out our reserves by 2100. But uh, there are rosier projections as well. They, they think we might be able to stretch out our reserves for another couple hundred years. I mean, I actually think it's kind of weird how 200 years until famine is is really the optimistic take here. And yeah. so, I don't know, I, I'm curious, what got us in this trouble in the first place? Was there just never that much phosphorus to go around? Or are we just blowing through it at this reckless rate? Or what's the issue? Yeah, it's a little of both. I mean, there's lots of phosphorus in the world, but the majority of it is locked up in the Earth's crust or in the bodies of living organisms. So I guess the most cost-effective way to source the stuff has always been to mine it in the form of phosphate rock. I mean, the trouble is that only a handful of countries possess significant deposits of this rock. And, you know, they aren't always as frugal with it as you might want to be. Well, I get the feeling we're talking about China again here, though, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it, don't don't tell me they're hogging all the phosphorus in addition to everything else, are they? Yeah, so historically, China has had one of the world's largest reserves of phosphate rock, but even they're running low these days. Not that you'd be able to tell from how the farmers use it. Well, what makes you say that? 
So back in 2009, China Agriculture University published a study that found that northern Chinese farmers use about 525 pounds of fertilizer per acre. It sounds like a lot, but then you realize it's actually six times as much fertilizer as the average American farmer uses. And if that's not bad enough, the overuse of phosphorus is compounded by the fact that most of it gets washed down into the ocean by rainwater. Huh. I mean, could this be a blessing in disguise? Like if that much phosphorus is swirling around in the ocean's currents, is there a way to start mining it from the ocean somehow and, and use it that way? Yeah, I mean, in theory, that could really work, and it's a great idea. But again, we'd eventually run into that core problem of pricing ourselves out. Like a switch from dry mining to marine mining would likely push the prices so high that most farmers would have to give up on phosphorus fertilizers and, I guess, use synthetic ones, which, of course, wouldn't do our food or soil any favors. Okay, well, that, that makes sense why you were saying this phosphorus shortage is... is pretty scary to think about. But you know, now that we've laid out the bleakest food future imaginable, I feel like we should look at a lighter example of diminishing resources. What do you think? I like the light side of uh, resource scarcity, but I'm not sure how much luck we'll have finding that. But why don't we give it a shot after the break? Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. All right, Will, so lay it on me. What's your upbeat example of a resource we're running out of? Well, I didn't say upbeat. I said a lighter example because there's actually a worldwide helium shortage, Mango. You get why I said that? (laughs) Yeah, I've been been saving that one up. So anyway, we, we know helium best as this noble gas that adds lift to our balloons and, of course, gives us the squeaky voices. And 
you know, honestly, losing that in itself would probably be enough to make it feel like a tragedy. But but there are other things to worry about as well. Yeah, I can't imagine a world without helium balloons. But why are we running out of helium if we can find it in the atmosphere? Well, that's the thing, because helium is super abundant in general, and it's actually the second most abundant element in the universe, and that's after hydrogen. It just so happens there isn't very much of it on Earth, and the helium that is here is constantly escaping through our atmosphere. And that's what's worrying, because helium actually has all sorts of important applications. For example, Juno, in its liquid state, helium has the lowest boiling point of any material on the planet. So not only does that make helium invaluable in cryogenics, it also makes it uniquely suited as a coolant for everything from magnets in an MRI scanner to the LCD screen on your TV or your smartphone. So all these ways that I I actually really didn't know that much about before doing the research for the episode. So what are we doing filling party balloons with helium? I mean, it feels like such a waste. And actually, if, if it's so useful and rare, how come you can buy a bundle of helium balloons for like 10 bucks? Actually, that's a really good question, and there are plenty of experts who argue that we should be charging way higher prices for helium. Like, I think they said the going rate for a balloon worth of helium should realistically be you know, something like a hundred bucks rather than the dollar or two that we actually charge for this stuff. That's insane. So it really doesn't make sense, like this price deflation. So how do we get away with selling it so cheap? Well, I mean, I guess it's partly just because we're used to helium being cheap and plentiful. So there's really this built-in resistance to the idea of charging more for it. Then there's also the fact that we won't run out of helium for at least a lifetime at this point, And that makes it easier to shrug off the risk. But probably the biggest reason that we sell helium so cheap is that the U.S. government wants it that way. You see, in the decades after helium's discovery by this French astronomer back in 1868, You had officials that began to realize how useful a lighter-than-air gas could be for these military applications. So with that in mind, the federal government created this federal helium reserve, and this was back in 1925. So I knew the government had a raisin reserve, but I don't think I realized there was one for helium as well. You love dropping that raisin reserve (laughs) fact. I I was hoping you would throw that in, which has always been weird to me, but we'll have to uh, talk about that in another episode. But Yeah, this helium reserve, it's located in this huge abandoned salt mine somewhere out in Texas. And, you know, the billion cubic liters of gas that's stored there, it represents half of the world's helium supply. It's just unbelievable. And in fact, at its peak in 2004, the facility was used to satisfy about 84% of the world's helium demands for that year. But nowadays, I think the number is something closer to, you know, like 40% or so. I mean, that's still insane. But why was there such a drop off? Well, back in 1996, Congress passed a law called the Helium Privatization Act, and this effectively marked the end of our country's 70-year experiment in buying and storing, refining, and then selling helium. And I guess the thinking was that helium hadn't turned out to be the wonder gas that we took it for back in the early 20th century, so we might as well start selling off our massive reserves. And after all, the project had incurred about $1.4 billion in debt, and the government wanted to recoup as much of that as it could. So, so anyway, the law mandated that all but 600 million cubic feet of the reserve be sold off by 2015. But no matter how cheap we sold the helium balloons for, we still couldn't manage to unload it all by that deadline. So instead, Congress passed another act establishing an auction system for getting rid of the helium, while also pushing that deadline back to, I think it's 2021, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's crazy to me because it feels like the kind of decision that could come back to bite us, right? Like, 
I mean, we're, we're burning through the stockpile at bargain basement prices just because we don't want to hold on to it anymore. But once all that accessible helium has been used up or, I don't know, dissipates into space, how are we going to cool our iPads or fill our balloons or freeze our Ted Williamses in the future? <laughs> right. Well, you know, when the reserve is tapped, that's when we'll have no choice but to finally charge what helium is really worth. Because once the current store is gone, the only options will be to pull helium straight from the air. And that'll raise the cost by about 10,000 fold wow. from what I've read. You know, or we could just mine it from the moon's lunar soil. And of course, that's not going to be any cheaper. I mean, I, I can't believe the moon's our best option. It, it feels like we've hitched the future of all kinds of resources to the moon's surface. Well, and it's like we've been saying, that's kind of the story behind all the resources that we're quote unquote running out of. Not that we'll mine them all from the moon necessarily, but that we'll have to turn increasingly to these more expensive options to extract them. And, you know, finally, we just won't be able to pay the cost anymore and are going to have to look elsewhere for sources of fuel or food or, I don't know, even the funny voices mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. But, you know, preserving natural resources is always this balancing act. And it's one that, honestly, our species hasn't quite gotten the hang of so far. So pretty much what you're saying is get used to $100 balloons. Yeah, I think that's going to be the case <laughs> at some point. And, you know, come to think of it, Tristan might have been better off stockpiling helium instead of all those sandbags. I hate to say it. <laughs> and of course, the hope is that humans will come up with some ingenious ideas to replace sand and dirt and whatever else. But, you know, while we wait for that to happen, where do you say we get to the fact off? Sounds good. In 1989, the New York Times did a story on cars in the Soviet Union. And one of the things the writer realized was that parked cars rarely had windshield wipers on them. Like drivers would take them into the house with them because otherwise they'd actually get stolen. Uh, apparently there was such a car parts shortage in those years and windshield wipers were harder and harder to replace. Huh. All right, well, the BBC did a story that there's been a shortage of burial space almost everywhere. And it's led to some pretty strange solutions if you just look around the world. So there's some places in Spain and Greece where you rent an above-ground crypt, and then when the body decomposes, they'll just move you into this common cemetery. Over in Israel, there are some multi-story underground tunnels that have been built, and they're trying to come up with a workable solution in the meantime. And then in Singapore, they have this unique system for ashes where they store the remains in one of 50,000 urns and you just bring a car to the front desk whenever you want to visit your relative and they bring the urn out to you. That's crazy. Um, did you realize that Norway went through a butter shortage in 2011? It was officially called butter panic, or that's how it translated. And it was caused by heavy rainfall one summer, which affected milk production. But apparently a single packet of butter was selling for $77. You know, of all the things we've talked about today, this sounds the scariest <laughs> because I can't imagine life without butter. But all right, well, here's something you probably didn't realize, but there's about to be a bacon shortage. Okay, maybe this is even scarier than the butter shortage. But according to Britain's National Pig Association, a pork shortage is, quote, now unavoidable. And this isn't because we've been feeding too many bacon strips to our dogs. It's a whole lot of other factors from the price of grains going up to pig illnesses. And again, it doesn't mean we'll run out of bacon. It's just that the price of pork chops and everything else will likely go up. So speaking of bacon, I, I know we've talked about the lake cow bacon, which is when Congress tried to import a bunch of hippos to America in 1910. 
This was to counter a meat shortage. And apparently hippos were also supposed to take care of invasive plants that people were worried about. And the meat supposedly tastes like bacon. But uh, I, I didn't realize there were a bunch of other wild meat options on the table, too. Congress was actually thinking about importing ostriches to start a bunch of ostrich farms and antelopes <laughs> as well. All right. Well, as a beer drinker, I'm sure you read about the hop shortage back in 2008. And then again, there was one back in 2012. But did you realize that the Sam Adams Brewery actually shared over 20,000 pounds of hops with hundreds of different craft breweries? So I, I did know about the hop shortage, but what's the advantage to Sam Adams to like share with breweries? Well, basically, it stopped these other brewers from going out of business. And it wasn't just a gift. And Sam Adams had actually given them at cost. But as the founder of Sam Adams told the Chicago Tribune, quote, I don't want to be Goliath. It's a lot more fun if you've got more than one David. Oh, I, I really like that Sam Adams did that to kind of save all these breweries. And it makes me like the beer a little more. I think you deserve the win with that fact. So I'm going to give you the trophy. All right. Well, thanks so much. And thank you guys for listening today. I know there are probably a lot of facts that we forgot to include in today's episode. So we would love to hear those from you. You can always reach us at part-time genius at howstuffworks.com or on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 